Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're reviewing the new book by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee that's called The Second Machine Age. This is a follow-up to their ebook, which was called Race Against the Machine. It's a book about the effects on the economy of new technologies. And if you've read Race Against the Machine, this book is kind of an expansion of that. It doesn't have tons of new ideas, but some things that I think are better phrased. And it's certainly a good book to give to, to friends or relatives if you want to educate them about the issue of technological unemployment and inequality. Right. This book's a little bit more for a layman's audience, I'd say, than uh, Race Against the Machine was. But it is well written, and it's got a lot of good ideas in it, and uh, we do have some criticisms of it, but it's a good enough book that we'd like to essentially give more or less the cliff notes of it and sort of go through it in order from start to finish, and as we run into things that we want to nitpick about, we'll sort of jump into them. Right. The beginning of the book uh, starts with just sort of contextualizing where we are in the book's called The Second Machine Age, so they define what they mean by the second machine age. What they're calling the first machine age was the, the era of steam power. Things like trains and looms came online and jobs that were done by animals or by human muscle were taken over by machine. The second machine age, which is the one we're supposedly in now, according to the book, is one in which mental tasks. Uh, start to be taken over by machines. They talk about how we're at a moment that feels like an inflection point. And they describe how we used to say computers were only good at certain things. And, and they talk a lot about this book from 2004 called The New Division of Labor that talked about how computers are good at following rules, but they're not so good at things like pattern recognition or complex communication. And yet, in the last few years, we've seen computers suddenly get actually very good at those things. The most easy contemporary example to bring up is Watson, which combines both pattern recognition and complex communication at the same time. So we've seen a lot of gains in just recent years that back in 2004, it seemed like computers were not going to ever be able to do anytime soon. Right, right. He also talks about Moravec's paradox, which is the idea that computers are, you know, much better at things that we think of as hard, you know, advanced mental tasks like math, and actually really poor at things that children can do, like right. walk around a room. And the, that abstraction is the computer's natural domain, and so, but the but the very physical things that we take for granted, like stacking. Blocks Stacking or blocks or, or just walking upstairs without falling over, right, as the, as the famous um, Asimo example goes, right. um, are, are traditionally very hard to create in, in a machine. Uh, but then they give an example of that being defeated very recently with this new Baxter robot that's extremely dexterous and you can grab its arm and it will move the arm with you gently and allow you to, to program it by manual interaction. And of course, there's numerous other examples of technologies that are coming online now, smartphones, software that can write prose now, 3D printing, all these things combined make it feel like we're at a time of sudden change. Of sudden change in what the capabilities of computer systems are specifically, right? And it's it's all anecdotal evidence, but it does feel right to me that these are pretty big epochal changes that are you know real different from what computers were able to do just uh, 10 years ago. And they describe three fundamental forces of this second machine age. And the first one is one we've talked about on the podcast before, and that's exponential growth in computing. I'm sure most of our audience is familiar at this point with Moore's Law. But the basic idea here is that exponential growth is very sudden and very surprising. That after a few doublings, it seems like not much has changed. And then you get very rapidly to a point where the numbers get gigantic. And so this might explain why as recently as 2000. 
before, some of these things seemed like computers would never do them. And then all of a sudden, in the last few years... Right. 10 years later, the computers are doing them. Right. Uh, this isn't just like some people saying that this wouldn't happen. This 2004 book that they're talking about, New Division of Labor, is, I think, done by MIT researchers. It was a very serious attempt to really get a hold of where technological capability was 10 years ago. And it's hopelessly out of date already. And they make the point that, you know, Moore's Law isn't just about memory and processing. Things like sensors have moved into the digital realm. So so we see exponential improvement in cameras, right. for example. So it's starting. Yes. Yeah. So it's affecting more and more things. What that's leading to is the next force that they talk about, which is the digitization of everything. All of the small sensors and small computers are leading to uh, all these new ways of picking up data and acquiring knowledge, and also all these new ways of sifting through that data enabled by the computing onrush have really changed what we can do as far as um, acquiring knowledge and doing science. We can learn things much more quickly and in ways that were not available to us in the past. And some of the interesting consequences to that are this digitized stuff is non-rival, so my use of it doesn't take away from anybody else's use of it, and it's got near zero marginal cost to reproduce. These are two fundamental properties of digital information that are now applying to more and more things. As more and more things get digitized, they all get non-rivalrous, and they achieve this uh, near zero marginal cost of reproductions. Of course, there's cost to produce things, but once you have that initial copy, all the subsequent copies are basically free uh, to make. So that creates a world in which data can be used and reused by multiple parties for, for multiple reasons. The third driving force of the second machine age is something they call recombinant innovation. Essentially, they just define innovation as being the combination of previous ideas to create a new one. And I, I agree with that definition. And they talk about how today that's really been empowered because the building blocks of innovation, which essentially are previous ideas, it's so easy now to replicate and transfer them and communicate those to people around the world. And on top of that, in terms of combining new ideas, one of the challenges is you have to sift through those combinations and pick out the good ones. And we have more eyes than ever before searching for those right combinations, again, as more of the world is connected. Yeah, and this seems like just sort of a restatement to me of the general idea, which we've talked about on the podcast before, that technology builds on itself and that old tools help you build new tools, old ideas help you make new ideas. But they go further with that basic concept and they, they use this word recombinant to describe the way that they imagine um, ideas building on one another. Exactly. So a big concept in the book that I think is really important to talk about is what they term bounty. And bounty is what they're calling the rewards of technological growth. Yes, I mean, all it, the it's, amazing it's sort of a, things that we get. It's yeah. sort of a vague term, but it encompasses a lot, not just uh, the obvious productivity growth in the economy, but also anything that, that causes people happiness or that uh, makes people's lives better. And they make the point that technology really is bringing a lot of bounty. And they do, you know, account for the fact that there will be lulls that when a new technology comes out, sure. it doesn't always get fully taken advantage of for maybe even years and years right. because businesses have to adapt to use it well. well. Literally everything needs to be redesigned for the new technology. Exactly. So there can be these periodic lulls as people figure out how to use the technology and there's still a business cycle. Obviously we had a recent recession and that's bound to slow things down at least a little bit, but they make the argument that there is a correlation between specifically today the use of computers and IT, 
with productivity growth. So they make the argument that companies that use more uh, computers in IT experience greater productivity growth, and they have some evidence to show that there's at least correlation there. And then, again, in terms of talking about the bounty, as Ted was just saying, it's not just productivity growth, though. It's also some of these things that are a little bit harder to measure. And so they talk about some of the the limits of of GDP. Right. And one thing that they talk about is free services, things that have no price, right? Things like Wikipedia, which provides lots of value in the form of knowledge, but is free to use, doesn't show up in GDP. Digital goods just sort of drop out of the metrics. You know, they talk about music. Music is an obvious example where, you know, there's so much more music being made and distributed now than ever before in history, yet only a fraction of that is recorded in the economy and the actual productivity statistics. Dollars spent on music sales are down, and yet there's more and better music than ever before. So that's about prices dropping to zero on a lot of these digital goods, and that being one source of underestimating our bounty when you're using GDP as a measure. But a second one is the arrival of completely brand new services that you couldn't even have. New technologies, new services, new abilities. That wouldn't have even existed before when they appear. Right. In the year uh, 1900, there's no amount of money you could pay for an iPod. Sure. For example, that's the kind of thing they're talking about. And now, of course, you can pay a small amount of money for an iPod. Right. And, and people, obviously, who track GDP and calculate these things, I mean, they try to account for this type of thing, but, you know, the, the accounting can never be perfect. And I guess one estimate is that GDP misses the value of new goods and services to the tune of about 0.4% a year. And that's not trivial because we're only really talking about, on average, 2% GDP growth per year anyway. So 0.4 right. is that's a massive, pretty massive amount. Yeah, if that estimate is correct. And uh, there's another thing that's poorly measured is the sharing economy. So everybody's probably heard of Airbnb or Couchsurfing or Zipcar or Uber or Lyft at this point and things like that that allow people to rent out spare space or a car or something like that don't necessarily show up in productivity statistics very well either. And so this isn't to say that we couldn't, you know, do a better job of measuring these things and find better metrics, but right now the metrics we have are very limited. So their argument again is that we've had a ton of bounty and it's much more than you would think by just looking at some of the traditional economic measures because again so much is not being counted right and so then after talking about the bounty of technology then then sort of talk about more of the darker side of this technological progress which they're calling spread right and spread is just a euphemistic term for inequality. Right. I mean, they just don't want to say inequality, and I completely understand why. So they call it spread. And they admit right up front that the middle class is just vanishing uh, in many industries, and we're seeing growing inequality. We're seeing the fact that uh, productivity and wages are not in line uh, the way that they were before the 70s. As productivity goes up in the economy, we're not seeing the average worker uh, benefit the same amount. They give some numbers. Between 1983 and 2009, the bottom 80% saw a net decrease in wealth, whereas the top 20% got more than a 100% increase in wealth. So uh, again, the listeners to this podcast are probably familiar with these trends as are increasingly more and more I think people. everybody yeah. is getting familiar with these trends because pretty much all of us are in that 80%. Well, and our we're president it is happening. talking about them now. The president's talking about inequality now. And this is obviously a political issue for the future because it, this isn't showing any sign of slowing down. I mean, that's basically what that entire Tyler Cowen book, Average is Over, which we talked about a few weeks ago, was about. And this book overlaps a lot in its... Uh, view of the world with that Cowan book, though I think they have a more liberal political persuasion. And They're a little more liberal and a little more organized, I think, with their <laughs> outlining. 
what's driving the inequality? And, you know, their answer is, you know, it's not Wall Street shenanigans and it's not government regulation. I mean, maybe those things are factors, of course. Um, and it's not just the business cycle. It has a lot to do with technology. I mean, that's the point of the whole book. So, right, and right. they talk about three trends, and we're going to go through them quickly because we've talked about them before in our technological unemployment episode, which was, I think, our second episode. So you can always go back and listen to that if you want more detail. But the, the first trend is what they call skill-biased technical change. And this is the idea, you know, the rising tide doesn't lift all boats. It really just lifts those with the right skills. So technology is not benefiting everybody. It's benefiting people that know how to work with those machines really well. Again, this is very similar to the point that Cowan makes in his book, Averages Over. And the next uh, thing which we've talked about is this, um, you know, growing imbalance between labor and capital. And there's always been tension between labor and capital. But right now, capital is just running away with the ball big time. Right. There's some evidence uh, that they talk about in the book that that may not last. Right. Because what retains the most value in the economy is is the scarcest inputs, is the point that they make. And so labor and not being scarce means that the value of labor is going to fall because not as much labor is needed in these automated industries. Right. Um, but even capital may drop in price too, because a lot of these capital, if we're talking about an asset like software, right. well, that's or easily- Or cheap hardware. Sure. Both of those things are being pushed cheaper because software is easily replicated and hardware is uh, subject to Moore's Law. So it's getting easier and easier to obtain some capital- as well. So first, you know, what happens is the the factory owner hires the robots and kicks all the workers out and those robots are worth more than the workers, but then eventually robots get so cheap that everybody has their own robots or at least that's one way it could Right, go. and nobody needs to buy anything from the factory worker, so now he's got all these robots and he only needs one to handle his own needs and the rest of them are surplus. Exactly. So that's that's the theory there. Uh, the next thing is uh, superstar economics. Right. And this is the idea that in a in a globalized economy, in a basically a world that's been made smaller by better transportation and better communication. And digitization of goods. Exactly. Second best is no longer good enough because why would anybody go to the second best retailer when Amazon is one click away? Right, right. Um, and uh, geography used to be a big factor that allowed second and third and fourth best uh, competitors to survive as long as they served a slightly different geographical area. But that Geography is basically flat now because of you know, partial delivery and the internet. And one sub-point to this that I find interesting is the idea of what are called network effects. And mm-hmm. this is sort of a snowballing phenomenon where, and again, an easy example might be, say, Facebook, which is that the more people that are on Facebook, the more valuable that network is and the more more people will want to sign up for it. So that just makes the winners consolidate their gains. Right. It increases the size of the mainstream outlet in a major way. And there, there is a counter to superstar economics, which is the possibility of specialization and pursuing a niche and the whole idea of the long tail. But they make the point that, yes, that's an option, but that still is a world... Uh, with much greater inequality than we've been used to. Right. And we have both of those things happening now. I mean, obviously, we have Facebooks and then we have, you know, all these niches. I feel like the niche companion to Facebook would be, you know, localized forums dedicated to specific topics, which right, we find all over like the web. Right. But I feel like increasingly the forums dedicated to specific topics are Reddit sub forums, which just makes Reddit into another Facebook that's gathered up all the niches. It's niches, all the niches, so it's giant. It's a humongous site and very monolithic in just the same way Facebook is. Yeah, so there's limits to this long tail as a solution. I mean, yes, there's a long tail, but that long tail might be contained entirely within a mainstream organization such as Reddit. That's, That's definitely a way that that could go. 
And all this together creates uh, what they call as a power curve distribution of income rather than a sort of normal bell curve. And a power curve is one that essentially shoots straight up uh, yeah. on the right end so that all the gains are going to the top. So those are the forces that are causing the spread to increase. And at the same time, the bounty is increasing. So the question they ask is, will the bounty overwhelm the spread? Will, who will win? Between the bounty increasing and the spread increasing, will it end up that the disenfranchised 80% who are losing wealth have so much better lives that they just don't care? Or will it end up that the, the top will rise so much further above everyone else that we'll have terrible unrest and unhappiness, right? Right. That's and it, essentially the, the question that they're posing. And there is a possibility, and this is an argument that some people would make, which is that the bounty will outrun the spread. And that's a world in which we all are doing better. And yes, maybe some people are doing much, much better. But does that who do, do we really care about that? Right? Well, and then it comes into that, like Bill Gates idea of, you know, you can only pay so much for a hamburger. And like, there is a there is a limit uh, at which ultra richness no longer makes your life better. Um, and if if the lowest standard of living or the average standard of living is high enough, uh, then it might not matter, uh, arguably. Uh, if there's also extreme inequality in that world. But of course, they have uh, some counters to that mm -hmm. um, that would imply that a spread really is something to be concerned about. Um, and one of those things is that some key goods are getting more expensive rather than less expensive. And those are things like housing, uh, healthcare, and college. Now, those trends might reverse. I think it's possible that they might. But right now, the cost of those is not budging. In fact, it's been going up. And so that doesn't bode well for people at the bottom who can't afford those really fundamental things. Right, because those are things you're going to have to pay for at market rates pretty much no matter what, especially healthcare and housing. On top of that, they talk about how many people are financially fragile. They have essentially no cushion. Again, Yeah, they have some research in the book, which is actually interesting yes. about how, you know, uh, they just ask people how easy would it be for you to come up with two grand. The results were crazy. They said that a quarter of people, 25%, uh, couldn't do it at all. And another 19% said they could do it, but only if they pawned possessions or uh, took a payday loan. So they concluded that like nearly 50% of the country is financially fragile. So certainly today, you can't say that the bounty is making things okay for the people at the bottom. And then another downside of spread is just decreased social mobility, uh, which is something that we've seen as a trend, or at least they make the case for that. Um, and that's sort of a founding principle that most Americans seem to at least believe in on paper. And so not having that would seem to be a pretty big downside. But even I think the biggest point that they make about spread is that this kind of inequality could actually dampen growth and slow down progress if it's not dealt with. The two points that they make here are that you're squandering innovation potential if you don't have a level playing field. Right, that's right? good. So you don't... You're just if give, you're, giving up talent. Right, I mean, if you're sure. not bringing everybody at least to the level that they can compete and participate, people could be so low that they don't even feel invested in trying. And, of course, that's bad for innovation. And then they also talked about these sort of... Uh, Rent-seeking institutions. Yeah, right? this sort of yeah. like ossification that happens, these extractive institutions at the top that aren't really producing much value, but they sort of solidify their hold on the economy, and it's pretty hard to get rid of them. And, you know, greater inequality pretty much just strengthens their position. Yeah, so the next thing they talk about is whether it's possible for technology not only to increase inequality, but actually create structural unemployment. And this is something that we've talked a lot about right. um, in this podcast and on our blog. 
And, you know, they review the dominant economic theory, which has, you know, traditionally said it's not possible. And they go back in history and they explain why that's been historically the case. But then they make, I think, a relatively convincing case for why that might not continue. And and this is pretty similar to an argument we've made before, uh, but they use slightly different terms. And some of their terms, I think, are actually better. So let's, let's get into them. The first is um, inelastic demand. Right. So they talk about the idea that just because you've made something cheaper doesn't mean you're going to actually sell more of it. Uh, And a couple of examples they give of this are uh, artificial lighting, which the cost of light bulbs basically halved over a period of time. And in that period of time, the lighting industry saw its profits go down. And the reason for that is because at a certain amount of light bulbs, everybody's got all the light bulbs they need and they're just not going to buy any more light bulbs. Once things are illuminated, a light bulb doesn't do you any good. And this is a direct counter to the Luddite fallacy, which is the traditional way that economists explain away this possibility of technology causing structural unemployment. And the traditional argument is that as you automate things, that drops the price of goods and that drop in price creates more demand. And then that more demand requires hiring more workers and in a loop that right. then repairs. And that, the- and that is something that does happen if we make something that's expensive and there's a lot of demand for it cheaper, you will buy more of it uh, because many things have elastic demand and they do respond in that classically economically modeled way. But um, what the point that they're making is, is that some things, uh, the demand for them is not elastic. And uh, the lighting is an example. Another example is tires. Like uh, tires, uh, the price of tires fluctuates with the price of rubber, but the amount of tires that they sell uh, basically stays the same because once you put tires on your car, you're not going to get any more tires. If, if you could somehow convince people to buy a lot more cars, then of course there'd be more demand for tires, but it's not super elastic, that demand. So the price doesn't end up changing that much of the consumption. And that's one way that you can have technological improvement that leads to structural unemployment. The technology reduces the price of the good, but it doesn't increase the demand because the demand is, for some reason, inelastic. And of course, not everything is like that. Many things are elastic. But I would argue that on the whole, uh, if you're really looking at the big picture, and this is the more extreme argument that I tend to make, that humans... Um, if you're looking at their basic fundamental needs. Now, I mean, there are higher level needs that people have, and it's arguable whether those can ever be satiated. But if you're looking at the core level of survival, say, uh, that those needs eventually will be satiable by technology in a way that uh, you won't necessarily be able to create any more demand. Right, right. And that's something that's even shown to some extent now, right? Because there's uh, statistics about how over certain subsistence or slightly higher than subsistence amounts of income, uh, people tend not to be happier. Right. Right. uh, On average, which has a lot to do with, I think, the idea that, okay, you know, having food to eat, having shelter versus not having those things, that's going to increase your happiness quite a lot. There's obviously uh, demand for those things. But then once, once we get to a point where we can provide those things through technology uh, ever cheaper, we could see that uh, running out of demand there. So that's the first argument for why technological unemployment can occur. Uh, The second, it would be something that we talked about very directly in our uh, technological unemployment episode, which is rapid technological change being so fast, right? Again, talking about this exponential rate of progress, that it outpaces people's ability to search for new work. Right. Um, So in this way, frictional unemployment, which is when people are temporarily unemployed and they're retraining for new jobs of the future and they're searching for those new jobs, that retraining, that search time 
could take a while. If they really have to learn new skills, they might have to go back to school. That might take four years. And what happens if technology is so fast that in those four years, already the demand for skills has changed and it just becomes impossible for education really to keep up with the labor needs. Right, right. And that's something that you can challenge from the point of view of, well, maybe education will get a lot faster and better and we can hope that education keeps pace. But it, it does seem like a, a genuine worry. If right now, the way our education system works is it's very slow and our technological change is very fast. And you could see how right now in today's world that could lead to, to structural unemployment. And then the third thing that they talk about is a wage floor. And this is an interesting point that I hadn't really thought of before, but it makes sense, which is that if you have a robot or a, or a software that can do a job, it may be that it's not worth it to you to have a human do it even for free, that there's no point at which it makes sense for the human. Right. I mean, this is the point at which inequality makes the handoff to full-on unemployment, right? I mean, because the inequality is this downward wage pressure that's being created by these automation options for employers. And so the wages get lower and lower and lower, and eventually they cross a threshold where it's just not worth it for anybody, either the worker or the employer, to even uh, have the arrangement in the first place. Right. Right. Well, oh, and isn't this something that uh, also comes up in the Cowan book yes, a little bit in an interesting way? Because yeah. he talks about that uh, from the point of view of the employer, which is a different perspective, sure. saying like, for me, as an employer who sometimes has an intern, it's like not even worth my time to have a second free intern because having to show them stuff isn't worth the amount of you know value I get out of them, basically. So even if we got rid of minimum wage, as some people would like to do, and, and we let uh, wages sink to exactly what the market you know wanted to make them, they could just drop so low that the whole thing gets called off. Right. Well, so to where it's not even worth the time of the participant who's, who's working, uh, because the, what they're earning is less than what it would cost to keep them alive for that period of time. Well, and especially in a place like the U.S. where people have certain expectations and... Right. Well, and the cultural expectations make it even harder. Yeah. A yeah. lot of people will, won't be willing to be underemployed, even if, you know, rationally that might make sense for them. Right. And, you know, then they also talk about, and this isn't really part of their three main points, but they talk about how eventually, you know, there's going to have to be the possibility of technological unemployment because they just do the simple thought experiment of if we had full-on androids, and it's hard to argue why we wouldn't get there eventually, that could do everything that a human could do. Um, if you accept that that's a plausible future, then clearly that would be a point at which, you know, machines would substitute for humans almost perfectly. Sure, and I don't think you get any pushback at this point from anybody who's serious about futurism that there's no point in history in which technological employment it's will happen. It's just how close to we it's are. It's just we how are. close are we to it and uh, how likely is it to happen soon. And I think you get people who will always think, well, it can't it can't be soon. It can't be until you get to that very late stage. And I think uh, what we're what we've found in the past and what I think we're going to continue to find is that there are a great many um, jobs and things that humans do that can satisfactorily be done by uh, by machines. Another thing they quickly talk about is offshoring, and they say something that I uh, agree with about offshoring, which is just that um, essentially offshoring is just a precursor to automation. It, it works the same as automation in the country that's having the offshoring happen to it. Obviously, in the country that's getting offshored too, it, it doesn't work the same way. But they, it, me they mentioned that those countries are also now being subject to offshoring, uh, China and, and other co um, countries that are known 
to be manufacturing bases are seeing automation happen in their countries as well. Almost by definition, the tasks that are vulnerable to outsourcing and the tasks that are vulnerable to automation are essentially the yeah, same. They're, they're very much the same because they're, they're routine. Yes. They can be explained easily to uh, an unskilled worker or a, uh, a uh, hard-to-communicate-with robot, um, <laughs> and uh, and that's why they uh, they get offshored and then automated in that order. Now, I, I think it's worth pointing out that when you read articles, and there's been a lot of them already that that are cribbing a lot from this book, right, that are summarizing some of the points being made in this book. And the headlines, the blog headlines you're going to see are, you know, robots are taking our jobs. Right. And, you know, for skeptics, it's worth pointing out that this book does not provide any direct evidence or proof that technological unemployment is happening now. No, they just, it doesn't even make that argument. It just makes the argument that it's plausible. They make the argument that it's plausible, that traditional economic theory doesn't necessarily hold up looking forward. And I do think they actually field evidence for the technological inequality argument. So, But they don't actually prove anything new as far as unemployment yet. Correct. So then the next part of the book, as we keep going through and uh, summarizing it, is really almost like a self-help section, which is uh, advice for individuals um, is the subtitle of it. And they talk about the idea that they talked about in their ebook, which is racing with machines. What they mean is finding ways for the human to add value to the machine. And there they use the same uh, metaphor that uh, Cowan used so well in his book, which is the metaphor of freestyle chess, where computers can beat humans at chess, but computer human teams where a human can override the computer or a computer uh, multiple computers can be used by a single human, are playing a level of chess that's unheard of in history. It's better than any chess ever played before, and it's better than either humans or machines can do on their own. So obviously that's not every domain. Some domains are simply computer domains already, and some domains are human for some time. But uh, in a lot of these domains, the, there is an opportunity for an individual who can um, work with the machine well and uh, fill in the gaps in its abilities to add a lot of value. And some of the things that they say that humans are still good at, even today, is ideation, coming up with new ideas, specifically good new ideas. Right, and recognizing good ones from just possibilities. Right, although they later say, you know, that there's uh, that's not necessarily going to hold forever. I mean, they, Right, there's progress on that front yeah. uh, for computers, for sure. Uh, they talk about, you know, computers have gotten better at pattern recognition when it, the computer's really trained on a specific set of patterns. But a specific of, domain like computer vision or like um, predicting stocks. Or, something. or, you know, Watson, again, was really good at doing that for one game uh, show. Human language recognition was like, right, the really important like breakthrough there was it could understand those complex questions with all the puns in them. And stuff. But even so, you couldn't put Watson on even another game show and expect it to do well. No, right? I think I even mean, at Wheel of Fortune, it would... It would need to be completely reprogrammed. So the computers do pattern recognition, but it's narrow. It's usually in specific right. frames. So, so cross-domain pattern recognition is still an area of human expertise. Um, but again, that's something that we might see just get eliminated because it's really a matter of scale from what we have now. And whereas I, I thought their previous book, Race Against the Machine, was a little bit uh, disingenuous and overly optimistic about this idea of racing with machines and seemed to imply that that was going to be an economy-wide solution for average workers the world over, at least the, or at least in this country. Uh, this chapter, I think, to me, feels a lot more honest in that, again, it's, it is framed as a self-help sort of situation. This is what you can do over the next several years. They just kind of use the vague phrase for some time to come. And then it fully admits, you know, 
never say never about this stuff, right? Uh, and they talk about how sometimes one man's creativity is really just another machine's brute force analysis. And they give the, so even ideation, even these things that computers can't do now will eventually probably be taken over. Succumb to machine processes. Yeah. Yes. It's more of a chapter that you would read for your own life and less of an actual solution right. to this. Well, and it's another place where this book is similar to Average is Over because they're very much describing how the uh, the Cowan's 15% of, you know, um, millionaire level Americans are going to get there. They're going to get there by filling a hole in a in a machine pipeline. And apparently you should send your children to Montessori schools. Yeah, that's another thing. Because, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and tons of these other entrepreneurs and, and that are... At least one of the authors of the books, I think, too. Make obscene amounts of money. Yeah, went to, to Montessori schools. And uh, I accept that. You know, I mean, again, the traditional education that we have uh, is is definitely not well tailored to uh, the needs of today. So I, I don't think that's controversial even. Yeah, no, I think my education was just ineffectual at beating the creativity out of me. Okay. Certainly tried. Okay, so in the next chapter, the book gets into policy recommendations. And by the book's own admission, these are not controversial. These are part of a really standard economic playbook that... A wide range of economists, both liberal and conservative, would agree with. So we're going to go through them, I think, really quickly because most of these... uh, Chances are you've heard of this stuff before. They're not too surprising. Yep. So first off, they want to improve education. Uh, Secondly, they want to promote entrepreneurship. The next thing that they talk about is reducing friction uh, and search costs for finding work. So they talk about, yeah, how, how we can get people into jobs more quickly. And they talk about the government actually, you know, maybe putting up prize money to develop a better sort of social network or indexing service for matching uh, workers to jobs. Workers to jobs. Right. The next thing they talk about is supporting basic science research, which is something we can all support regardless of what else it would do. They talk about upgrading infrastructure, which is another obvious suggestion. Uh, Opening up immigration. Uh, And again, I think it's worth pointing at, you know, out that all these suggestions are designed to essentially just speed up growth. Right. And they say that explicitly. They're not trying to save jobs necessarily. They're much more interested in, in speeding growth and uh, uh, spreading the, um, the bounty right. of Be- that growth. So bringing up the bounty it will hopefully uh, account for the spread or at least mitigate it. And then the last one, which I'll spend a little more time on, because uh, this is where this book becomes sort of the liberal companion to Averages Over, which talks about many of the same issues, is they talk about tax policy. And, uh, you know, talking about taxing wisely to align the incentives well, I don't think there's anything uh, controversial about that. But they do uh, talk very explicitly about taxing some of the highest income earners uh, and about how there's not necessarily evidence that that would demotivate people at the top. Because at, at a certain point, uh, you're not earning money to spend it, you're earning money for status. And that status still retains if you are taxed at a high marginal rate. Uh, certainly, that's been the case in America in the past and in other places. So they make the argument that uh, you can tax high income earners at a very high uh, top marginal rate, and that that's okay. They also talk about taxing pollution and and some other kinds of things uh, that we could do to to rationalize our tax system. Of course, you know, it's it's worth pointing out, I think, that all of these proposals are basically DOA in our existing political system. So you'd have to have basically structural reform to our political system to seriously talk about any of 
these proposals. Well, and it's worth bringing up the sort of counterpoint from the Cowan book, Averages Over, which is that at least in the case of taxes on high earners, the policies won't get passed because right. those high earners have all the power. Right. Well, and we already have a system in which the preferences of the uh, elite are what gets turned into law despite uh, them being, you know, in, in contrast to what the majority wants. If, as Cowan suggests, and as their book also sort of implies, we end up with even more rich people in this country and very many fewer middle class people, that increased size block of rich people is going to be nearly impossible to defeat politically. So the idea that we would raise their taxes, incre- you know, very high is, is I think, unrealistic, uh, despite maybe being a good idea. <laughs> so by and large, I mean, I agree with all these policy recommendations that they make. Uh, again, they're not controversial, but do they really address this problem? They certainly don't hurt, but uh, they're nothing they're, really very new. Well, they're also all positioned, we should say, as short-term solutions to the problem of technological unemployment. And on that level, in like in extremely short term, if we were to do all the things they talk about, if we were to um, put a ton of money into modernizing uh, and technologizing education, if we were to put a lot of money into uh, promoting entrepreneurship and basic science research, and if we were to massively upgrade our infrastructure while also opening up immigration and, and somehow magically making our tax system a lot smarter... I think in the short term, that would actually lead to job growth. It would lead to de- demand rises in, in elastic goods um, that would cause people to be employed as you know housekeepers or lawyers or whatever things aren't automatic, automated at, at the moment. It would also promote growth, and long term, it would contribute to technological unemployment if, in fact, that's uh, correct and that's what's happening. Because- but it might get us there quicker. And in, in, in yes. analogy, sort of to, to tearing off the band aid quickly, because you know, once you get to a point where the bounty is big enough to address some of the real core issues like housing and healthcare, right? Because we again, we've talked. If we about can bring people's. Yeah standard of living up at the bottom, then they're going to accept the inequality, ultimately. And and that may be the most peaceful solution. So that's worth thinking about. I think it would, however, ex- accelerate this process of, you know, existing jobs no longer necessary, uh, obsolete because of technology. And if we're worried about our search for new work being overtaken by technological progress, it would make that problem worse. Right. But if you ex- if you accept the vision of the future where eventually, say, healthcare will be provided by robots and software and housing will be built by these autonomous machines for very cheaply and ed- education will be piped into everybody's home free, uh, yeah. then eventually we, that point would be a pretty good world. And so if we could just get there quickly enough, maybe everybody's unemployed, but they're doing okay. Right. Yeah, we could perhaps just transition our current middle class to being an unemployed class of people who can get all their basics taken care of without work. But then the next thing the book talks about is the more long-term vision. And this is where I think the book really... Um, this is where we have the most criticisms ...turns of the book. away from what we think and, and, and goes in a different direction. And I, I think we have several nits to pick here. So so let's talk a bit about this section. Well, it opens up with this Voltaire quote that uh, they use a lot. Uh, I've heard them use it in interviews on radio, etc. And it's, uh, work saves a man from three great evils, boredom, vice, and need. And I'm going to pick that quote apart in a second, but they start with that. And then they talk about how, okay, we don't want to slow progress down. We don't want to turn our back on capitalism. 
right? But we might have to rethink wage labor, right? Because if we believe these technological trends are real, then eventually this concept of society, this contract that we have where people are going to trade labor for money in order to survive, uh, that's not going to hold up. And as Martin Ford talks about in his book, they allude to it here, uh, that could even lead to a full-on consumer collapse where if nobody has money in their pocket because nobody can find work. Right, or you just enough people. If you have enough people who right. don't have money in their pocket and can't buy an iPod or whatever, it destroys the market for iPods and then nobody has them. Then that creates weak demand and this vicious cycle right. that could actually end up slowing the actual progress that they like so much. Yeah, not to mention creating social unrest. And there's, there's not much about those basic premises that I disagree with. Um, and then they talk about uh, something that I'm sure a lot of our audience has heard of, which is the basic income as one possible solution to this problem, this failure mode of capitalism, where maybe eventually it makes people obsolete. And the basic income is the idea that everybody, no matter who you are, unconditionally, you get enough money at least to pay for your basic survival needs. So we set a f complete floor on how much money you can make right, right. So this is sort gonna, of a yeah. fashionable idea these days they're talking well, it's about fashionable this. among the internet uh, futurism crowd well but. no not just there i mean uh switzerland's got a referendum sure, coming sure. up and brazil's already implemented this and they've had some pretty good luck uh with it so there's some movement around the world but not in the u.s I it's would not say. it's not a mainstream idea but i think people are starting to talk about a basic income because it's a way to it's a conservative idea it's a way to save capitalism uh in a world where not everyone's actually going to have market value for their labor and in the past, it's had a lot of supporters. And Eric right. and Andrew in this book do a pretty uh, quick rundown of all the people that have supported it on both the left and the right. Right. Famously, Nixon tried to get it done, and it didn't didn't happen. Which isn't even that long ago. Right. So, so this is not as controversial an idea necessarily from a historical perspective as it would seem right now in America's current political climate, where the idea of paying everybody for doing nothing uh, I think would be labeled socialist immediately. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely um, after the demonization of welfare that happened in this country. I think it's it's not on the political radar, but it's something that uh, is increasingly getting talked about. So this is where the book kind of loses me because they talk about this basic income and they talk about how it's a solution to the problem. And they have all these quotes from various famous people on the left and the right supporting it. Milton Friedman and what have you. And then they say, but we don't. We don't like basic income. And they come back to that Voltaire quote that I mentioned earlier. And they don't like the basic income because they feel that work is somehow fundamentally important. And again, just to, to reexamine the Voltaire quote, well, boredom, okay, it's arguable whether or not work saves you from boredom. I think a good job saves you from boredom and a bad job brings tons of boredom into your life. probably the biggest cause of boredom in your yeah. life. Yeah. And boredom, you know, I mean, <laughs> Voltaire said this quote so long ago. I'm, I'm sure that the quote applied 100% to the world in which Voltaire lived. Sure. But we live in a completely different world where a lot of work has been mechanized and routinized in a way that... Uh, I think makes it a whole lot less fun than um, what Voltaire might have imagined work was from his perch of, as an upper-class European in the Enlightenment. And, and vice <laughs> is a bit of an anachronism. I mean, you know, I, he, I guess he's talking about you know, yeah, sex and drugs and things that society can, frowns on. Yeah, what actually constitutes vice today uh, is really hard for me to even say uh, because it seems so relative it's kind of puritanical it's kind of like you know idle hands do the devil's work but it's like not really right. very clear about what that devil's work is right and i also feel like vice you know if you're talking about vice is just like 
pleasurable things that you do that don't have any societal societal value. If you just you know define it really broadly like that, then vices are first off encouraged by many jobs. Uh, it's like you're going on Facebook because you're stuck in your cubicle or whatever. You're drinking tons of you're coffee to coffee, stay awake. You're sitting all day, which kills you. Um, you get home, you want a beer immediately because you're just so worn out. And- yeah, uh, all those things. And it also, I don't know, it, it seems just tangential to work to me because boredom and vice can be their own cause and cure <laughs> um, w- without work being in the in the right. hook at all. It's, it's, it's just a strange... I, I just I don't really see how this quote applies to our modern life at all. Right. And need they already they already say doesn't apply. They even admit because again, the basic income, of course, the whole point of that is to take care of the need part. Well, so. this is the thing is that in a world where work can save you from need, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should let it do that. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that our world as it currently exists and as it's been set up was set up more or less appropriately where people labored because we've been in this sort of Malthusian desert island world where we didn't have enough for everybody to go around. Historically, wage labor makes perfectly good sense. It makes good sense. You you pull your weight or you don't get to eat. But as they convincingly argue in the earlier parts of this book, if you are in a world where wage labor does not save you from need, then you're left in the Voltaire quote with just boredom and vice, which as we said, we can cure each other. You can cure the boredom with the vice. You don't need the work anymore. <laughs> yes, I like that idea that the, the vice cancels out the boredom. But anyways, you know, they, they don't just give a quote. I just wanted to pick that quote no, apart because it's, it's annoying. Just, it's annoying. It's an annoying quote. It doesn't really apply. It, it, it really does talk about uh, the way things were and not the way things are going to be. But they do claim that they have all this research and evidence that supports the idea that people really fundamentally need to work. And of course, by work, they don't mean, you know, work that you do, like the work that we do on this podcast for fun. They mean work as in wage labor, right? Work that's dictated by the needs of the market. Work that involves, yeah, you either selling something to an open market or uh, obeying the orders of someone else in exchange for money. That's what they're talking about. And I I find it very unpersuasive that you need either of those things in your life. Well, and the, so they claim they have this research and evidence and this, and at least the research and evidence that they share in the book is just exceedingly weak and falls apart under even the slightest examination. So uh, they talk about this uh, this book uh, and these yeah. concepts of mastery. So they bring, up, they bring up the yeah. Daniel Pink book, Drive. And this is, Daniel Pink is a journalist and, and, and that book is just sort of a survey of, of some studies that have been done. I, re- I read that book and I recommend it. It's an interesting airport book if you're like, like, you know, looking for a light read uh, on management techniques, it's great. But what it says, and it says this very clearly in the book, it's just completely wrong uh, the way that they they present it in this book, uh, is that it, it talks about behavioral economics uh, research that's been done and behavioral psychology research that's been done that shows that when you're trying to achieve a better productivity in creative work. So when somebody's solving a creative problem, a problem where new ideas are, are necessary or synthesis of ideas is necessary, and you want them to perform better, that uh, above a certain amount of subsistence, money is not a good motivator, and that there are these three other motivators, which you've probably heard of, mastery, autonomy, and purpose, that work better to to promote that kind of work. That That's all the book says. It's, it's very much presented as management advice and it does not make any claims that those three things are what people need to be happy, which is how they treat the evidence in their book. Right. And that's a complete misreading but let's say, of, what's, 
of of what's been proven. No, Let, nobody's <laughs> arguing that. Right. Let, but let's say for the sake of argument, right? Okay. That mastery, autonomy, and purpose do make you happier. Because I would I would maybe accept that as a hypothesis, right? Do you then get those things from wage labor better than you can get them anywhere else? And I would say that that, that doesn't hold up either. Right. Well, that, this is something we wrote an article on the on the blog about, which is that you can get all three of those things from a life without work. And in fact, in some cases, wage labor is counterproductive. If, for example, autonomy. If autonomy, <laughs> having control. Right. If that's fun- a fundamentally opposed to wage labor because you have a boss. Wage wage labor <laughs> is just a force that says you don't get to do what you want to do. You have to do what the market says is valuable. And that's fundamentally taking away your autonomy. In fact, I would say it's the number one force in uh, the U.S. in my life that I experienced that takes away people's autonomy Correct. day in and day out. Correct. Um, it's the if, biggest force against autonomy. Now, mastery... Mastery I, can be achieved in a lot of places. Like in the past, you might have needed a company to get mastery because you might have needed access to expensive technology or expensive software. But these days, uh, you can get that same rig at home. And in many cases, people are bringing their own device to work. And uh, you can master, I can master web programming here, or I could go master it at a job. They'd be equal. I mean, education is a source of mastery, taking classes. Right. Games are a great source of mastery. Games, is, that's yep. the entire appeal of games. Uh, hobbies, you know, anything, you know, again, work, they're using work to mean wage labor, but there are plenty of things that, as they point out again earlier in the book, that amateurs do, they create all this content, all this user-generated content online for free. Right. And I imagine that they get some uh, mastery from that and also some purpose as well, right? I mean, purpose is another thing that can come from almost anywhere. I mean, traditionally, it's come from religion, from churches, from social groups, right. from community groups, from uh, your geographic location, your your sports team, God, anything. In fact, part of the reason that Daniel Pink, I think, wrote that book is to try to explain to business people how to better do at their business things that business are tradi- is traditionally very bad at. Right. Um, d- traditionally, the um, gray flannel suit American company, the IBM of the 60s, gives you no mastery, autonomy, or purpose. Well, no, it probably gives you mastery, but it doesn't give you any autonomy or purpose. But it might not give you the right amount of mastery. And it might not give you the right amount it might of mastery. Give you too you might, boring or too hard of a job. Right. You might have too simple of a job, too repetitive of a job. And what they uh, figured out in the 90s and the places like uh, Google and Apple are set up this way and they, they do really well with um, with innovation is that uh, creative people, if you give them a little bit of free time, you give them the chance to learn something cool and you convince them that your company is somehow like a religion or a charitable group or something, you know, you convince them that you'll do no evil or that you'll have a great mission like organizing the world's information, then you can uh, motivate people to work harder and better and to do better creative work work in in that business situation but that's like a hack it's like a way to make business more like the way people wish the world was and to suggest that this can only come from wage labor is insane i think and to to suggest that it comes best from wage labor is wrong Uh, i think that if anything wage labor has to work really hard to make sure it has enough of these things to motivate its creative people Right. And then they also talk about some evidence and I, you know, they, they have some quotes, but none of them are very uh, strong, really. But, you know, supporting the idea that joblessness, the problem with joblessness, what gets to people the most when they're unemployed for six months or longer, it's not the loss of income, it's the loss of self-worth. Of dignity, right. And I don't, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. I would say, sure, uh, that I imagine that's a huge component of what depresses people about being unemployed. But that's such a socially determined thing because right now in the current wage labor society we have, jobs are such an expected 
thing of everybody. Yeah. Well, I'd also be really interested in seeing numbers on that. Uh, for Europe versus the U.S. Because the U.S. in particular, uh, being a quote-unquote classless society, puts a tremendous amount of social worth in your job. And it's obvious why that would depress people and and reduce their self-worth. But that's, as you're saying, it's completely cultural. We could simply change the expectation. And listen, if we have 25% of, you know, persistent unemployment or something, we'll have to. It'll just, it it will naturally change. The same way that uh, attitudes about anything else change uh, you know somebody who's going through it and then you know a few people and then you have some sympathy for them and then before you know it your attitude has changed right i mean you know uh 12 year olds aren't depressed that uh they don't have work uh and that's because you know all the other 12 year olds that they hang out with they don't have jobs so they're not comparing themselves to them once you're an adult you compare right. yourself to everybody else and if everybody else on your block has work and you're in this category of the unemployed which is still a minority uh, then, you know, you feel like an outcast. But it, in this hypothetical future where more and more people are unemployed, you're going to have plenty of company and it's you're going to stop being treated like an outcast because it's going to have to become normalized. I mean, right. we can't well, just... I could even see this being like a social movement of the future, like, uh, you know, unemployed acceptance. The same way we've, you know... My job doesn't define me. <laughs> exactly. Or my, my, lack <laughs> my lack of a, of a job, job doesn't define right. me. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's an insane uh, cultural prediction to make. It seems like that's a natural response to the trends that they're proposing. Right. And then they also c- cite some evidence of some study by Charles Murray of two groups over time. They distinguish the groups in terms of the quality of their education and their jobs. And uh, one group work was much more scarce than in the other group. And they tracked what happened to these groups over time. And, you know, the group that had less work available and had worse jobs available had more divorces and less happy marriages and higher incarceration rates. And, of course, this is not a controlled study whatsoever of the effects of having a job. I mean, no, it's it's really just a statement about how there are, in fact, class differences in America. That's all that's all this really says is like we treat lower class people differently. So they end up in jail more often and they end up divorced more often. And, you know. They well, have, and again, they have you, a harder time when you rely on wage labor for need and for money, uh, and then you take the jobs away. Then you don't have the money, and you have the need, and <laughs> right. you have more fights with your wife, and you <laughs> turn to crime more often. And right. it's just, but that's all just rational because these people are trying to survive. Right. At the, and that's at the top of the hierarchy. And uh, if they don't have jobs in a, in this in this world in which you have to have jobs to survive. But that doesn't say anything about what would happen if we'd given uh, the people in the theoretical uh, lower class community a basic income. Uh, they might have uh, had just as much unemployment in that situation, but they might have had perfectly fine relationships with their wives and uh, with law enforcement. Uh, we don't know. Uh, there's no evidence one way or the other in that study. So the book lays out uh, this whole sort of false argument about how people really need work on some fundamental level that goes beyond just making money. Like a psychological level. And so I'm gearing up, I'm expecting that they're then going to propose some kind of, you know, works progress administration. Right, right. Like a, basically just a, a reeks and wrecks uh, from, from Player Piano or like uh, WPA from the Depression, just straight up hiring people to dig ditches or build bridges or whatever. And instead, they go somewhere completely different. They say that instead of basic income, we want to have what's called a negative income tax. Right, which is just Milton Friedman's version of the basic income. It's, it's honestly not a different thing from what I understand. And the way that they describe it being different didn't 
fully make sense to us. Well, they seem to argue that a negative income tax will do a better job of incentivizing work. And, you know, I, I'm going to have to put these numbers probably just up on the blog, but I did just, you know, some really basic arithmetic. Right. They give a simple example, which they extrapolate from this yes. own Friedman speech, and they, they pick some numbers. So all we did was we wrote their numbers down in a chart to try to understand what the hell it was they were saying. A negative income tax and a basic income really produce the same exact end result. They both put a floor on how much you can make. In their example, it's... Uh, 1500 No, $1,500. Right. They're I mean, using these, 60s numbers, yeah, these but it doesn't not, matter. It, right. The numbers are irrelevant. We're just using easy numbers to compare the idea. So they use, yeah, 1500 is the absolute floor. If you are, work at none, if you work zero, uh, then that's what you make. Uh, so they both set a floor on, on how much you can make, and they both kind of compress the amount that you earn uh, because of taxes. Uh, but essentially, they're the same thing. Right, but in the book, they claim that Below the threshold, the negative income tax appears as if it's a dollar fifty for each dollar, and we just can't figure out how that is. We yeah. think that maybe they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So this may be our economic ignorance here, but I'm going to go ahead and put the numbers up in a blog post, and someone can tell me where I'm wrong here. But I'm pretty sure that a negative income tax and a basic income are essentially the same thing. Neither one has any greater premium on working. However, there are potentially some differences that would matter. Right. right. And some of them they mention it and one of them they don't. They mention them kind of in passing. They don't emphasize them, I think, enough because these, these differences actually are interesting. So right. a negative income tax would force people to file tax returns, whereas a basic income would require you, I suppose, to just register and provide your address. So if the government is interested in tracking people's incomes and having that data. Right. And, and if economists are interested in yes. having that data to crunch with their statistical analysis tools, then you could see why people might prefer that. But, you know, a lot of people might not prefer that because they maybe want their privacy and they don't want the government to know exactly how much they're making. So right. that could be an argument for the basic income, actually, um, depending on what side of that argument you're on. Right. Um, and then this is the one I think that is the better case for a negative income tax which, and they do mention it, which mm -hmm. is that it, a negative income tax could essentially just use existing infrastructure. Correct. It um, could be uh, administered by the IRS without creating a new bureaucracy. It just becomes a new uh, tax credit. In fact, they talk about specifically expanding the earned income tax credit, which is a tax credit that already exists, uh, that Ronald Reagan ushered in, uh, and just basically turning that into a negative income tax by making it much larger than it is and by uh, making it apply to single people as well as to families. Um, which I think is a, an interesting idea because uh, using existing infrastructure is almost always more plausible than building new infrastructure. One thing that they didn't mention, though, about uh, the negative income tax, and you know, I, I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but I, I, I was trying to figure out what they meant, and I went back and I googled some of the Milton Friedman that they're quoting, and what it seemed to be that he was saying, and maybe I'm wrong about this, so if I am, correct me in the comments, but... It seemed like he was saying that only in the administration of a negative in income tax, it would basically be made to appear as if you're earning more. I still don't really understand how that works, but that seemed to be his implication and not theirs. So I want to put that out there as being if, in fact, the negative income tax could be made to make it look like every dollar you earn is worth a dollar fifty up until a certain point, then that does actually make sense to me as being something that would incentivize work. Now, I still question whether we want to incentivize work or whether that's even important. But uh, if we did, 
uh, then I could see that being an argument for this. That's not exactly the argument that they make, however, in the book. Right. I mean, if you have a low opinion of the population and, and their ability to track their own bottom line, you think you can psychologically manipulate them through how you portray the numbers, which I'm not saying that that's impossible. Yeah, that sounds pretty plausible to <laughs> me, quite frankly. Yeah, except that I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's just how much money is in your bank account. I think, I think that's something that people Here's can... why I think that's plausible. Like, I've seen research about tax rebates and they tend to increase spending more than lowering tax rates, even though they're mathematically the same. And I think it could, it could end up being the same way. If it looks to you like a payment uh, that you are getting uh, in addition to your paycheck, then it might be psychologically more inducing of spending than uh, if it were um, calculated at the end of the year and given to you in a lump sum like your tax rebate is. But, you know, that's not the argument that they make. I just wanted to bring that up because that seemed to be what they were sort of misquoting or misunderstanding from Milton Friedman. And if that's not right, I'd certainly like to hear about what is right. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, their support for negative income tax is the same as the support for basic income. And, you know, they do strike a humble tone about how, you know, we don't have all the solutions, we're open to things. And they actually put in a list of what they call wild ideas, which I guess are things that they've in their various uh, travels around the US talking to various people, they've gathered these uh, suggestions together as brainstorms of ways that you might respond to this problem. And so I'm thinking, you know, I have the list in front of me, maybe we'll just kind of go through and see sure. what we think of them. Sure. Um, so the first one is this is an idea, I don't know who this is coming from, it's just part of a list. Create a national mutual fund distributing the ownership of capital widely and perhaps inalienably, providing a dividend stream to all citizens and assuring the capital returns do not become highly concentrated. Right. Well, and that sounds like a pretty good idea. Yes. But also one that would be uh, immediately labeled socialism and and never uh, implemented. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I tend to agree with this book in that they, they have a defense of capitalism in which they sort of boil down the things that capitalism does well, the sort of decentralized uh, decision making. And I, I think, you know... You oh, yeah. That's another nit, though, I have to pick with this really? book, which is they they make a pretty good definition of capitalism in the book, which I don't remember exactly. But then immediately afterwards, the next paragraph says, and and most of these conditions are met in China. Which I feel like if you define communist China as capitalist, you have now defined capitalism in a way that that has no meaning. And I think that that's just simply not the case. I think, you know, there are market forces at play in China, and arguably market forces are simply descriptive of the way the world works and have nothing to do with the political ideology. But to say that that's a capitalist society is insane. I mean, one thing that I think China can do that the U.S. can never do, uh, no matter how much automation happens, is they can do direct provisioning. If they find that they're making stuff in factories and it's piling up and no one's buying it because they don't have enough people who have money for it, their government can just distribute it. And that won't be a contradiction for them. But if we were to try to do that here, it would cause an absolute outroar. Right. But but forgetting uh, the, the China uh, contradiction for a second, um, here I have their definition of capitalism here, which is this. Uh, a decentralized economic system of production and exchange in which most of the means of production are in private hands, as opposed to belonging to the government, where most exchange is voluntary, no one can force you to sign a contract against your will, and where most goods have prices that vary based on relative supply and demand instead of being fixed by a central authority. Right. And all of those things uh, strike me as the parts of capitalism that are worth keeping. Yes. I mean, I'd be in favor of keeping those. I just think we need to set a floor on 
uh, what people... Uh, what kind of suffering we allow What kind people. of suffering we allow, and, right? And we already do this. We already have floors on, on what kind of suffering we allow. We don't allow children to starve. We have a program called uh, TANF that, that keeps children from starving in this country. We don't allow people to go without education, even if they're poor, up until high school. We have public education. So it's just a matter of what else do we want to put in that list. And I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that the basic income could uh, actually replace a lot of existing welfare infrastructure and be a more libertarian, more freedom-oriented version of traditional welfare. Well, because we have a very convoluted system of social safety nets right now that overlap and that right, are state and federal expensive levels. to administer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could simplify that whole thing and give people more, here's that word again, autonomy by simply giving them a certain amount of money and right. allowing them to spend it in the market how However they, they want. And you just have to accept that some of them would spend it unwisely and that that would be part of it, and I think, and then it would be, you know, at that point, it'd be up to charities, I suppose, to help them. But I mean, you know, right? At that but point, I think I, yeah. I think at that point, society can kind of wash their hands of those people because yeah. uh, they're continuing to be eligible for more basic income. They can continue to misspend it if they want, but if they want to learn their lesson, then then the, that's available to them. Obviously, I can see the political difficulty in enacting something like that. But from a rational point of view, I think it, it makes actually a lot of sense and it might be cheaper to administer and more effective or at least as effective as our current alphabet soup of uh, bureaucracies. So anyways, long tangent, but National Mutual Fund sounds nice, but uh, doesn't sound very plausible. Uh, second idea, use taxes, regulation, contests, grand challenges, or other incentives to try to direct technical change towards machines that augment human ability rather than substitute for it towards new goods and services and away from labor savings. This sounds like a very bad idea and one that I think Eric and Andrew would disagree with. Yeah, I think this, well, that's eight ideas, first off. But if you yeah. if you take just the most clearly stated one, which is to use various incentives to incentivize machines that do not replace humans, that's, I think, silly and impossible because you don't design machines that way. You don't start with the idea that, well, we're not going to replace any humans. You just try to make the machine do something and then it does or doesn't replace the human. That's just basically making engineers think about a bunch of stuff that isn't the problem they're trying to solve. I think that would be a huge mistake. And it's trying to, you know, indirectly put the brakes on certain types of technological progress that we don't like, which I think is just a bad idea. Right, because you can't tell from here which technology is going to be important later. Plus, it's not at all clear that labor-saving technology is bad. It's only clear that suffering is bad. That's the <laughs> that's the only that's the only first principle we have to reason from on that. Yeah, right. So you know, only to the extent that the lack of labor is causing suffering, are we really convinced that we need that there's any problem here? Uh, just labor-saving technology in itself is good, and they say this elsewhere in the book. So I think even they would probably agree that we should probably not do that. This this list of things, like we said, is is not endorsed by them. It's just suggestions they've heard. A uh, third idea is pay people via nonprofits and other organizations to do, quote, socially beneficial tasks as determined by a democratic process. This is kind of creating so that's work called for people. socialism. And I, you know, I think that's fine. But again, it's not going to happen in America. That's um, what I thought they were going to suggest when they had I mean, their whole speech about how work's important. Right. And specifically when they say, you know, the prices are set and the, and the means of production are generally uh, private. 
um, having a, a democratic process that in America we call that the government. You might call that something else elsewhere. Right. Uh, but in, in America, we call democratic process the government and having the government do that uh, and hire those people for those socially beneficial tasks that aren't being rewarded by the market, I think is just not going to happen. It's, it's not that I think it's a bad idea necessarily. And I think you might see it in China, but you ain't going to see it here. <laughs> The next idea is nurture or celebrate special categories of work to be done by humans only. For instance, care for babies and young children or perhaps the dying might fall into this category. And then this, again, this is just placing limits on technology that we don't want to have, right? Right, Why right, would we right. not want to, like, if we have a strain on our healthcare system, for example, why would we want to say, oh, we're not going to allow the robots to help out and care for the dying? Right, uh, no, that's crazy. And I mean, I think the part of that idea that sort of rings true is like, well, I think there'll be a large market for human labor in things like healthcare. Even if robots can do the work, I think people might just prefer to have their diapers changed by a human nurse uh, in some cases. But that let the market handle that. I don't think there's any reason to have uh, the government or like, uh, uh, they don't say specifically the government, but maybe they mean like a more like a labor group or, you know, an industry organization like promoting human healthcare. We, that's not necessary. That's already the healthcare we have. And they'll continue to be a market for that. And if robots start to uh, encroach on that market and bring down prices, that should be regarded as a good thing. Well, it says nurture or celebrate. And all, and so that I think that feels like a softer, like more of a cultural movement, which really overlaps with this next point a lot, which is, again, I don't this, I feel like this could be in concert with the government, but maybe not. And this is to start a, quote, made by humans labeling movement similar to those now in place for organic foods or right. award credits for companies that em- now this is getting into this is a lot of ideas at once award <laughs> credits for companies that employ humans similar to the carbon offsets that can be purchased now that's government intervention at that point right if some consumers wanted to increase the demand for human workers such labels or credits would let them do so now the the labels and the credits are wildly different they're wildly different ideas labels if they're voluntary like organic labels are now it's a marketing gimmick, that's and a marketing the market gimmick. will do it. Yeah, exactly. It's not – that's like, go ahead. Try it. Um, try to convince that top 15% of high earners that they should buy the, uh, you know, made-by-humans product, and right. you and might make, just convince them. You might just convince them. I mean, we've seen uh, certainly a rise in authenticity-based goods uh, recently, so I see no reason why that can't be continued. But then having the government actually do, like, cap-and-trade on, on machine labor is uh, – not a good idea. <laughs> the next one is uh, provide vouchers for basic necessities like food, clothing, and housing, eliminating the extremes of poverty, but letting the market manage income above that level. Well, this is just... Okay, so that's just more, a different version of the welfare argument. It's the more paternal you more, version of the basic income. Right, a more paternalistic version. It's more just like an expansion of our existing... We already give out vouchers for food. They're called... EBT it exists. We already, I mean, this is something we already have. You could just do more of it. You know, you could give it to everyone instead of just, uh, uh, or you could give it to everyone instead of just uh, the people who qualify for it now, like, uh, you know, families with children. You could expand the, you know, the vouchers that we give out now. And I guess, you know, the only, this differs from the basic income or the negative income tax only in that you're, again, giving less people autonomy. So if you have this mindset where you're really worried that, oh, if you just give people money, they're going to spend it wrong, 
then this is something you'd be in favor. Now, I'm not really of that camp. I right. Think that I think both of us are on the opinion that poor people know plenty well how to spend their money. The problem is they don't have enough of it. Right. And if you give them more, they will do a plenty good job of, of allocating uh, to their needs. And I think there's relatively good, actually, research on this. I don't have it handy, but uh, I think in Brazil, they've uh, where they have a version of this, they've actually done some some pretty good research to show that when people get money uh, who are poor, they spend it on things like food and housing and education because and on starting businesses because they're not idiots. They're right. just poor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next idea is ramp up hiring by the government via programs like the Depression Era Civilian Conservation Corps to clean up the environment, build infrastructure, and address other public goods. Right. Well, this is where we thought they were going to go. Yeah. Earlier, this is an idea I think is uh, actually a very good idea. It worked very well in the past, and we have desperate needs for infrastructure, which are just not profitable enough or able to extract rents enough to really ever get done by the private sector. So uh, having the government do that seems to me like a, a very good idea. Again, I don't think we should be necessarily inventing jobs out of thin air, but for infrastructure tasks and things, there are plenty of things that we really would like to have done in the short term, and I think there's no reason why. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why we yeah. shouldn't build a nationwide train network, fix up all our roads, and uh, upgrade our wireless infrastructure to the best possible technology. I mean, those jobs won't last forever, but again, if technological progress is so fast and exponential, then we only need to weather the storm for a little while, right? So. Right. Well, and if that were to provide 10 or 15 years worth of uh, infrastructure work for a lot of unskilled laborers, that might be enough time for some of those people to uh, to retrain, too, uh, because uh, you can learn while you work if you are uh, if you're motivated. Well, that could days. even be part of the deal. Could like, even be part. We're going to give you a sure. job. We're going to pay you, but you also have to take a class. Sure. If we if we wanted to be more paternalistic about it and force people to do what's good for them, I'm all for the uh, something like that. I think again, I don't think people would need that. I think they'd probably choose to do uh, things that were good for them anyway. But uh, but sure, if, if we wanted to, I see no reason not. And so, you know, we've covered the main points. We've given the cliff notes of the book. Again, most of our disagreements have to do with this sort of long-term solution. Uh, but even it's not so much our disagreeing with their solutions. Actually, at their, you know, at sort of the substance level, it's just more how they frame it um, is a little bit... Uh, uh, counter to our intuition about, you know, work being somehow fundamentally uh, I actually think desirable. that culturally, this idea that work is so important is dangerous. And that as the inequality grows and the unemployed grow, one of the things that's going to allow that 15% that Cowan talks about or the, the racing with machine people as, as uh, are, they're described in, in this book, one thing that allows them to feel callous and unconcerned with the suffering of the unemployed is this culture of work and that your value is in your work and that, you know, anyone who work, who tries hard can get work. And I think the well, faster... it's also what makes people feel bad when they're unemployed. It's also what makes people feel bad when they're unemployed. Absolutely. And I think the faster we can attack this culture of work and get to the idea that um, your value comes from your relationships and your creative output and your happiness and the happiness you provide others, and that it does not come from what job you secure in the market, I think... Uh, the better our society is going to yes, be. Yes, and the book really fails on that So account. to the extent that they could have, um, from this position, I think they could have easily put that idea forward. Or at least planted the seed of it. They, I, I think they, did, they decided not to do that, and that was disappointing to me. Yes, it was, it was disappointing to me as well. In um, fact, I don't know of any particularly good book out there that has really addressed that directly. I mean, maybe there is one, but I, I haven't encountered it. So 
Yeah, well, and I think, you know, in the past, uh, academics have been basically arguing, well, but we'll still all work forever. Well, you know, this Luddite fallacy thing has had been the standard response to that. And now with uh, Averages Over and the Second Machine Age, you have a generation of economic books that are basically acknowledging all of the premises that lead to the end of work scenario. But right. then, But then at the very last minute, they blink. At the very last minute, they pull away and they say, but... We still, you know, we're still going to maintain the structure. But, you know, I the, just don't find that realistic. I don't, I don't buy it. But you know what? Uh, this book, I think, makes it a little bit further than their previous book, Race Against the Machines. So you can tell where things are heading. I mean, I, I feel like eventually... Right. I anticipate next year we'll have books from, from leading economists uh, saying that, um, you know, maybe it is time for America to reevaluate its obsession with work. <laughs> I feel like the nature of academia is just that it has to kind of move slowly and pay proper deference to the ideas that come before it. And you can't, you know, you can't jump too far ahead all at once or, you know, you kind of risk shame and... Right. Or uh, der- derision, which is, I think, where, yeah. where this argument goes. When you do make, when you do uh, uh, push this argument forward, you just get derided by people who are in the field, and uh, they don't take it seriously. You know, you don't want to be, you know, associated with communists or socialists or some of the other people on the internet that maybe sound a little unacademic. In right. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to be called a crackpot. And I, you know, I feel like this is the closest probably that we have, and that it's very readable. You can give this to. Yeah, you can uh, give this to your mother, or your grandmother, and they'll be able to follow it. There's nothing like complicated in it. And the things in it that were like review to us, like there's a ton of just anecdotal examples about things I'm sure you as a listener of this podcast have probably heard about like self-driving cars and things of that nature. But they'll be exciting to somebody who's not plugged into the to the nerd futurism world. Okay, so uh, this has been a longer podcast than usual, but this is an important book uh, to us and to these uh, issues that we like to talk about. So uh, that's all for now, though. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll uh, see you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.